Problems that you ought to be concerned with. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it, or what to do with it, or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn. Oh, hello. Gabby Dunn here with more news from the front lines of our slow descent into financial apocalypse. That is, of course, if the regular apocalypse doesn't get here first. Don't you guys just love this show? Okay, so as if this show needed to be any more depressing, we're going to start off this week by talking about the 2016 election. I know, I know, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. sorry. Look, I don't want to do it either. I, it'll work. Look, it's going to be quick. It's going to be painful. Okay? Get ready to hear Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders argue. If a Democratic Congress put a $15 minimum wage bill on your desk, would you sign it? Oh, of course I would. I am sure a lot of people are very surprised to learn that you supported raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. Okay, okay. Like I said, that's enough. That's enough. I know it was probably infuriating to listen to that for like just a whole bunch of reasons. But let's leave aside the patronizing tone that Bernie Sanders takes with Hillary Clinton and that Wolf Blitzer takes with both of them and instead focus on something really remarkable about that exchange, which was from one of the Democratic primary debates. Because it's easy to forget in the midst of the current hellscape that there was a time when a lot of people not only thought the eventual Democratic nominee was probably going to win the election, but that whoever that nominee ended up being was going to win based partly on a commitment to raising the federal minimum wage. In fact, There was so much conversation about raising the minimum wage in the 2016 election cycle, even this fucking clown made noise about supporting it. The minimum wage has to go up. People are at least $10, but it has to go up. Despite what he said there, raising the minimum wage is just one of the many campaign promises our current monster-in-chief has broken now that he's in office. And while he was only committing to about $10 an hour, whereas Hillary and Bernie were debating the viability of raising it to $12 or $15, Even the increase Trump was proposing would have been a vast improvement over the current federal minimum wage, which is, are you ready for this? $7.25 an hour. That's right, $7.25. If you assume a 40-hour work week, that's a little more than $15,000 a year, which, to put it mildly, is completely fucking ridiculous. A 2017 study by the National Low-Income Housing Coalition found that there are exactly 12 counties in the U.S. where the current minimum wage is enough to rent a place to live. That's out of over 3,000 counties across the country. So honestly, as great as a higher minimum wage might be, it feels to me like it's a little too late to wait around while politicians haggle over dollar amounts. We need bigger, bolder ideas beyond just raising the federal minimum wage. Ideas like, drum roll please, a universal basic income. It sounds simple, right? Turns out, it actually is, kind of, which is why a surprisingly diverse coalition of people support it. Who are these beautiful dreamers, you ask? Find out after the break. Welcome back to the show. 
So let's get into this universal basic income idea with Lauren Smiley, a journalist who recently wrote about the idea for Back Channel. So universal basic income is the thought that it would be an economic policy coming from the government in which everybody just being you know, a citizen here in the country would be paid some sort of stipend, probably on a monthly basis, just for existing, like everybody would get a payout from the government. So yeah, universal basic income means the government just decides that everyone, regardless of circumstance, should get money every month. There's a couple different schools of thought when it comes to universal basic income, or UBI, as we'll be referring to it throughout this episode. Plenty of progressives believe it's a good idea as a powerful tool to combat poverty, especially in a country where, you know, you can work full time and only make 15 grand a year. Progressives are, you know, behind it for reasons of leveling the playing field, you know, getting rid of income inequality, making ensuring that, you know, the working working class or everybody has a enough money to get by, you know, if if mass unemployment is coming because of technology. But beyond progressives who simply want to introduce some goddamn compassion into the financial system, Lauren explained that UBI has also found support amongst libertarians of all people. It's usually thought of as a replacement um, of the, you know, welfare state. So instead of having all these many different programs that have different, you know, cutoffs for what, you know, how much money you can make every year in order to qualify for this program or that program, it would just be getting rid of all that and just give everybody the same stipend across the board. But whether you take the side of progressive thinkers or those cool guys at parties who love to tell everyone how the government should just get out of everyone's way, there's broad agreement that we have a problem. And that problem is the robots are coming. It has come up again here because of this big controversy over what's going to happen when the robots come for the jobs, when the self-driving cars come and all of a sudden this huge sector of truck drivers is out of out of work and all the towns that the trucking industry has kept alive across, you know, Interstate 80 across the United States, you know, will then dry up because there is actually no human in these trucks that needs to be fed or housed um, along the route anymore. Or what happens when, you know, the automated factories, uh, you know, put the factory workers out of work. And so it's just this thought of as automation and robots are increasingly taking away the more sort of rote tasks out of the out of, you know, the job market. What will become of people? What do you do with this excess labor? How do we, you know, escape some sort of dystopia? In the world Lauren's describing and which Silicon Valley is actively working to build, all of those trucks, gas stations, rest areas and hotels disappear, along with all the jobs they currently provide. Hearing this, I naturally thought to myself, oh, good. Yet another case of white men ruining the entire country while they enrich themselves, which isn't really an exaggeration. According to a recent estimate in courts, the tech industry is about 85% white and 75% male. And true to stereotype, some of them have pretty narcissistic reasons for supporting UBI. As Jacobin writer Peter Fraze told me, those reasons aren't that complicated. They see this world as sort of massive automation and robots and algorithms and so on, and they think, well, if we get rid of all the human labor and nobody has a job, well, then where do people get the income to pay us, essentially. And despite the fact that the universal basic income concept has been floating around American political discourse for decades, it's those self-same tech bros who've made it particularly relevant to the current moment. But Lauren says their thinking around UBI isn't solely motivated by profit. 
At least a few of them recognize the fact that their wealth allows them to be a little idealistic and to ask themselves some philosophical questions. The most, you know, obvious example in my story was a guy who had, you know, made basically his fortune in his 20s while working at Facebook, you know, and being there when they went public. And he basically could have retired at that age off of that. And it it had freed him to think of, well, what is life if it's not work, you know, because in the U.S. we very closely link everyone's identity and the purpose of life to work. And it it had freed him to be like, you know, how else can you have a meaningful life if you don't actually have to work, you know, for the rest of your life? What what makes a meaningful life? So, sure, it's great for a bunch of young, privileged, white wannabe philosophers to dream about what makes a meaningful life. But the thing is, these guys are thinking about the meaning of life because they can literally afford to sit around and ponder without worrying about making enough money to live. They don't have much in common with the communities that would benefit the most from universal basic income. The places where people are busting their asses at the jobs the tech community is gradually working to eliminate. So what do the people in those communities think about all this? My next guest is working hard to answer exactly that question. We'll meet her after the break. Hello, Deadbeats. Welcome back to the show. Before the break, we were talking about what universal basic income might mean to communities where there aren't enough jobs and where the jobs that do exist don't pay much. Those are exactly the communities that my next guest has spent the last few months visiting. Mia Birdsong is a writer and activist and TED speaker. And surprise, she says people in poor communities think about financial independence pretty differently than the Silicon Valley set. Okay, so you've been doing this project called the Listen First Tour. How did that start and what cities have you visited? It started because I was invited to a day-long workshop that the Economic Security Project was doing. And that was kind of where it became clear to me that there was a whole conversation, a really powerful and exciting conversation happening without the presence of the people who would be most impacted by it. So I said to them, hey, you all should be doing something about this. And they were like, "Okay, can you do that? And I was like, sure. So I have been to, let's see, I've been to L.A., I've been to Durham, I've been to Jackson. I'm here in the Bay Area. I'm going to be going to Stockton. I feel like I'm leaving out a handful of cities, but it's really been uh, Minneapolis all across the country. And the thing that is so fascinating to me and that I think is one of the big takeaways that I want to make sure other folks understand is that it's not really hard for people to imagine a life where money isn't a struggle. And when people are invited into that space, the kind of just dreaming and visioning um, and imagining that happens is really beautiful. And, you know, and it's not, people aren't talking about, you know, I'm not talking about people having billions of dollars and, you know, taking private jets to Dubai. Like, it's really just that, what would it look like for you to not have to worry about it anymore for the, for your needs and the needs of the people you take care of to be covered. And, you know, like people talk about like not feeling stressed out anymore and kind of what they would be able to, what the kind of headspace that it releases for them to be able to think more about their future. They want to do things like go back to school or start businesses, you know, make sure that their kids can go to college, buy houses. The things that I think, you know, really resonate with most people in this country in terms of like what a good life looks like. 
So when I introduce the idea, and most of the folks who I talk to haven't heard of it before, you know, folks generally are like, "That's that sounds great. And it doesn't solve for everything. You know, it doesn't make the schools that their children go to any better. It doesn't eliminate race and gender discrimination that they experience. It doesn't make it easier for people to access, like, you know, it doesn't take anybody's credit score. It doesn't make it easier for them to get a loan. It doesn't change the way that people kind of interact with their city government, right? It doesn't make their governments more democratic. So there are things that people kind of experience as a result of economic injustice that guaranteed income doesn't affect. It's come up a little bit in our interviews about it is like, you know, this judgmental fucking thing of like, well, if we give them UBI, like, what are they going to use it for? And it's like, mind your business, what they use it for. Yeah. And the fact is, we give money to wealthy people all the time. And we don't require them to have financial training. We don't require that they spend the money on particular things. There's this assumption that if you have money, that somehow you earned it, and that you, you know, are moral and make good decisions, and therefore are responsible enough to get more money. And our assumption is that if you don't have money, that you you somehow, you know, you haven't worked hard enough. You've made a bunch of mistakes. Instead of recognizing that we have an economic system that actually prevents people from moving forward and that our safety net system isn't just kind of paternalistic and ignorant, it is, it is purposefully shaming and comes from a place of basically trying to prevent fraud and and kind of forcing people to prove that they are worthy of things like housing and food, which, of course, everyone is worthy of because those are basic human rights and no one should have to earn their access to things like that you are required to be alive. And, and also, I think talking to people allows you to get like specific with their needs. So like the number that comes up in in these conversations is $1,000 a month. Is that like the starting point that you're finding too? Well, it's funny. When I first started the tour, I proposed $1,000 a month and kind of asked people what they would like, you know, what impact that would have on their lives. And then about halfway through, I decided to stop telling people $1,000 a month because I was like, that's kind of arbitrary. Like, I mean, it's not arbitrary. It's It's the amount that I think has been figured out that would kind of end absolute poverty in the U.S. But I was like, I want to know what people actually would want. And nobody says $1,000. They all say way more than $1,000, particularly if, I, if I'm talking to groups of organizers who are Black and have a an understanding of what reparations is. People think that they should get way more, which I love. Um, <laughs> that was one of, the, like, the first time I did that was in Minneapolis. And it was one of the best kind of ahas for me where I was like, oh, I've been putting this limitation on this concept. And the whole point is for me to, like, be expansive and, like, think big and invite people into a space of thinking and dreaming really big. So they totally schooled me and were like, and were like, you know, like I said, I think the lowest was like $3,500 a month. And I really appreciated that because part of what it does is it pushes back on this idea that people who experience economic injustice should be like grateful for some like small amount of money. And when I think about how wealth is concentrated in this country and who is actually producing wealth versus who gets to keep it. Like, of course, people should be getting, poor people should be getting way more than $1,000 a month, particularly if they're like indigenous or black. I mean, black people in this country worked for free for hundreds of years. 
and we are owed. So I really appreciated the the group of folks in Minneapolis who were like, who were just like unapologetic about recognizing that their ancestors worked for free and that they themselves are in the position that they're in because of a racist economic system and that they weren't like, they weren't about to be, to settle Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. $1,000 a month. I really appreciated that. Let's talk about work because especially, you know, the misconceptions about poverty. Do you find that the people in the communities that you visit think of ideas like home ownership and work differently than people elsewhere? Like financial advice is really centered a lot on raw value creation without pausing to think about like what value might mean to different people. And I feel like they've, they're like, a you know, coming at it from a different angle. I don't know that I could generalize about how people think about work and like homeownership. I mean, I think that here's, here's the thing that, that came up a, around housing. So, and it came up with the first group of, of people that I talked to. It was a group of women in Jackson, Mississippi, who live in public housing. And when I talked with them about like, you know, what $1,000 a month would mean for them, they talked a lot about the idea of buying a house. And when they talked about what they would do, like what that meant for them, it wasn't a, a financial investment, right? It was they wanted a house because they wanted a place where their kids could play in the backyard. They wanted a place where they did not have to follow somebody else's rules. And, you know, there, it's one thing to like rent an apartment and have to deal with a landlord. It is a completely separate thing to be living in public housing and having to deal with like random inspections and all kinds of other really punitive um, and paternalistic rules on what you can and can't do in your in your home. They wanted a space where they could like you know, sit on the porch and watch the sunset and have a drink. They wanted a place where they could have barbecues and invite their friends over. So what was clear to me is that they're not interested in housing. They're interested in having a home. And that being able to, particularly as a black woman in the, in the United States, being able to have a place where you're creating a space for yourself and your family and your community gives you a sense of safety that you don't get in other places in the United States. And certainly, like, you know, we know that black people can be can be killed in their homes, but having home and feeling some sense of control and agency is fundamentally what these women were talking about when they were talking about buying a house. It wasn't about like, I'm going to buy a house and then, you know, the market changes and I'm be able to sell, sell it and make some money or pass wealth on to my kids necessarily. It really was about like where they would live now. As far as work, work is an interesting one. If you are not wealthy the kind of narrative that you are given about work, about paid labor, is that that is how you earn your dignity, right? People talk a lot about like the dignity of work and they specifically mean paid labor. And, And partly they're talking about like sacrifice, right? Like working really hard, not getting enough sleep, doing, doing things that compromise your well-being in order to like get a job done. And because we have that narrative about paid labor, again, people believe that that's how they kind of earn their personhood. So one of the questions that comes up all the time about guaranteed income is like, you know, what if, what if people stop working? Um, right. So one, I'm like, 
that's like right like no one's gonna stop work it's not enough money to stop working number one number two like people have we've already been indoctrinated to believe that we need to work and this is this is you know the exception in this of course is people who inherit wealth and don't actually have to work don't necessarily feel a need to demonstrate their personhood by doing paid labor exactly um, so it's very convenient for yes. the people who hold wealth for the rest of us to believe that the way that we demonstrate our personhood is by producing their wealth and I think I think when we if if we dig under kind of the the corrupt version of work and earning one's personhood, I think what we really get to is that everybody wants to contribute. They want to be productive, but that doesn't mean like making, you know, widgets or putting in lots of hours to, you know, show their boss that they did something work really hard. But they want to they want to make an effort and that they want their that effort to like do something. But I think, you know, when you ask people what's the most important thing in their life, like they don't talk about their jobs. I mean, some of us are lucky to have jobs that we love, right? But people talk about their family and their community. And there are so many other ways for people to contribute to, you know, their families, their communities, the well-being of the world that have nothing to do with paid labor. And frankly, I think we're missing out on a lot of people's talents by requiring that, you know, you have a job in order to live. So when I think about kind of the like the robots are coming version of why we need to have universal basic income and the concern that people have about jobs, like I'd love for us to get to a place where we're like, you know what, we're going to make sure that everybody is taken care of whether or not they have a job. I feel like some people think that that is like, well, then I'm going to have to work harder to make up for these people. You know what I mean? Like there's not a one to one. Like I think people have this false idea that everyone needs to be contributing or else I'm going to have to do more and this person will have to do less. Right. And that's also how, how capitalism kind of socializes us to think about our resources, right? We have a very scarcity driven society. And we think that like, yes, you know, if somebody is working, somebody else is working less, like I have to work more as opposed to like maybe everybody works less because there are there's technology that helps, you know, there's technology that does the jobs that nobody should have to do. Right. Like maybe we don't have people bending over for 12 hours a day to pick strawberries in the summer anymore because we have a machine that does that. Or if there's like a super fun site that needs to be cleaned up, we have robots go in and do that instead of having human beings do it. Like I'm fine with getting rid of the jobs that are damaging to people's like emotional or physical well-being and thinking about what it means to take care of folks anyway. And I realize like, you know, like <laughs> I get that that is um, a utopian perspective. And I think that we have, I'm like, well, what <laughs> we should absolutely better have a utopian perspective. Like we have to have a vision of what we want the world to look like that is big and bold and and perfect because otherwise, like, how do we even, what are we even trying to do? Right. I don't expect, certainly not in my lifetime for us to get anywhere near that, but I want to hold that as the thing that we're, we're striving for. So we know what our North star is, right? Yeah. Do you have indications from the tech community about if your workshops and how they're affecting the perception of UBI? Let me say that that this idea that we should be listening to the people who are most impacted by something is like, you know, I didn't invent that. So I think that there is a an emerging awareness that all of the all of the kind of issues that we're dealing with as a society, whether it's homophobia or transphobia or gun violence or economic justice or white supremacy, that addressing these things needs to be directed by the people who are most impacted by it. So 
I think there is a there is kind of a new openness. I would say in the last decade, there's been a, a, more of an openness to the idea that people who are poor actually know what the hell they need um, and what to do, and they don't need people telling them what to do. But actually, what they need is the resources to leverage what they're already doing to move it forward, and that social capital, you know, our connection, our sense of community, is a mitigating force against experiences of of poverty, against experiences of racism, against experiences of misogyny, that having having connection to other people who see you and and care for you helps us navigate all of the like bullshit of the world. Mia's working hard to find out what the practical effects of UBI might be. Part of why that's hard is that there aren't many places that have actually tried it. There have been little experiments over the years in places like rural Manitoba or Stockton, California, where they're actually trying a version of UBI right now. And while it's hard to know what the results would look like on a grand scale, the early indications from these smaller trials are pretty promising. Lower hospitalization rates, increased high school graduation. Lauren Smiley, the reporter we spoke to earlier in the show, told me there's no shortage of data suggesting that universal basic income can have a powerful effect. There's been, you know, studies about just the toll, the daily toll that living in poverty takes. And it's been found that if you don't have this worry, if you have a bit of a cushion, that it frees you up to think about all sorts of other things. Like, say, what makes a meaningful life? But the thing is, that question isn't unique to rich 20-something former Facebookers and poor people. My next guest thinks UBI has the potential to transform the way everyone in the entire country thinks about income. His name is Andrew Yang, and he is so convinced, in fact, that he's running for president on a universal basic income platform. We'll meet him after the break. Well, friends, I don't know if you believed me when I told you we'd have a bona fide presidential candidate on the show, but if you didn't, maybe you should trust your girl. Because Andrew Yang is here to tell us why he should be the next president of the United States. First and foremost, it's because he wants to give us all free money. Not really, but you'll get it when you hear it. My name is Andrew Yang. I'm running for president as a Democrat in 2020. Just wrote a book that's coming out very soon called The War on Normal People. It's available for sale right now. So what is the the universal basic income that you're proposing? What's the basic plan? Well, it's called the Freedom Dividend, and under the Freedom Dividend, every American adult between 18 and 64 would receive $1,000 per month from the government. And it's based on a plan proposed by a guy named Andy Stern, who used to run the largest labor union in the country. So the, a universal basic income actually became this close to becoming law in 1971, where it passed the House of Representatives and it stalled in the Senate because... Democrats wanted the income level to be even higher. So it seems radical now, but it was mainstream political wisdom in 1971. And uh, Martin Luther King was for it. Richard Nixon was for it. A thousand economists signed a letter saying this would be great for the economy. It's an idea that for whatever reason, we've let lapse, uh, but we need to bring it back in the face of the way the economy is changing with new technologies. Like whenever people come on this show and say, well, where would the money come from? I always counter and think about how our defense budget is in the trillion. Yes, we can easily afford it. We are the richest, most technologically advanced society in the history of mankind. 
Our economy is 19 trillion in size. It's grown over 4 trillion in the last 10 years. We printed 4 trillion for the bank bailout. The cost of a universal basic income would be approximately 1.5 trillion on top of uh, the current income support and disability monies that we spend. And mm-hmm. and we're such a large economy that we can easily afford that. If we had a value-added tax at half the European level, that would get us 7 to 800 billion. And then we would realize hundreds of billions in cost savings because of all the health care uh, expenses that the government pays for right now that would be paying less of because people with $1,000 a month would stay out of the emergency room more. We spend billions of dollars on incarceration, homelessness service, mental health problems. All of that stuff goes down in cost. If th- this, this will largely pay for itself. Plus, with $1,000 a month in everyone's hands, we're all going to spend more money. It's going to support the economy. The Roosevelt Institute did a study and and projected that universal basic income of $1,000 a month would increase the size of the economy by $2.5 trillion in perpetuity and would help create 4.5 million jobs. And the government gets 25% of that economic growth back. So anyone who thinks that we don't have the money just hasn't actually looked at the numbers. What happened? So it didn't go through the Senate in, in the 70s. It just got dropped after that? So... The, the way it stalled out was that um, senators from the Democratic Party wanted higher levels of guaranteed income. Um, yeah. And then the regime sort of soured on it a little bit because there was one flawed study that came out that showed that marriage rates went down um, with income support. Uh, but then Who later, cares? <laughs> yeah, but, but then later yeah. they went back and found out that that data was was wrong. Um, That's probably great. It's probably a bunch of women who aren't marrying people they don't want to marry or getting out of abusive relationships, to be honest. Yes. And that's one of the things I I love that universal. One of the things my wife loves that universal basic income is so pro woman and pro marginalized people because it gives you economic freedom. You don't have to be Mm -hmm. in a bad, abusive relationship. You don't have to be in an exploitative job like it, you know, it, it can free you up to spend time with your, your child if that's what you want to do. And then imagine being a parent and knowing that when your kid reaches 18, they're going to get a thousand dollars a month. What a freaking mm-hmm. load off that would be for, 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 right? every, for every parent. Would people still receive uh, welfare or SSI or um, like on top of of this money? So the plan would be that everyone, uh, the the universal basic income would be opt in. So if you're receiving greater benefits in SSI or welfare, because mm. maybe you have, you know, a, a, like a couple of kids, then you can keep your current benefits. Uh, and if anyone's receiving anything close to $1,000 a month, they'll obviously choose the freedom dividend because there's no case managers, there, there are no requirements, no reporting. Yeah, the freedom dividend, sorry, is what you call basic income. I just wanted to yeah, yeah. clear uh, that, that up for that, that tests fantastically well with every group. Like, like who could <laughs> not be for the freedom dividend? What's the difference between someone receiving disability and, and someone receiving the freedom dividend? So the disability churn rate or the rate at which people get on disability and then get off is essentially zero. It's like less than 1%. Like when you're on disability, you're never coming off. And part of the reason for that is that if you start working again post-disability, then you lose your $1,000 a month forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so who's going to jeopardize $1,000 a month to take some tenuous part-time job? Nobody. <laughs> so you, the Freedom Dividend replaces that and says, hey, here's your $1,000 a month. And if you work a part-time job, that would be great. If you feel better, great. If you're able-bodied, great. So we've talked about this a little bit, but how would it affect the way that we experience class? Like culturally, what would 
what would change? Well, so the the great thing about the freedom dividend is that if you're working a job, let's say you're a waitress, you're making $18,000, and then I'm sending you $1,000 a month, you're probably not going to quit your job the next day. Um, So then you're making $30,000. And unlike many other programs, um, you're actually encouraged to work because every everything you make on top of your freedom dividend, like you might be able to save some money. You might be able to start planning mm-hmm. ahead. If you can fulfill people's basic needs, they'll actually start thinking about what it is they actually want to do. Like maybe mm-hmm. they have businesses inside of them that they'd want to start that with $1,000 a month, they have that sense of security. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and that's what I've seen with the entrepreneurs I've worked with is that most of them um, had some degree of foundation that they could build off of, and then they could think about what they truly wanted to work on. Yeah. Well, I think there's that whole thing. I mean, it comes up anytime there's government benefits where other people want to police how other people use the money or the benefits. So like the whole thing of, well, you shouldn't buy candy with uh, EBT. Like it's this thing of, want, I'm sure like I can see people coming out of the woodwork and being like, well, what are people using their $1,000 on? Which like, one is nobody's business and two is like, you know, doesn't doesn't affect you in any way. And also is kind of this thing where this false idea that, well, this money is mine because it comes from taxes. Does that make sense? Oh, completely. And uh, and one of the key themes is that it's their money anyway. Like we're all the owners of this society. If a company mm-hmm. gives everyone a dividend, they don't go around saying like, hey, you know, like you got to use it for like yeah. X, Y, and Z. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're the owners of this society. We can easily afford $1,000 a month per adult. And so if you mm-hmm. get that money, you should do with it what you will. And it's really no one's business. Um, but in, in my experience, and the studies have shown empirically that most people are going to use it to try and improve their lives. So does that what you, when your your slogan is humanity first, is that like what you mean when you talk on your website about shifting the economy to human capitalism? Yeah, right, right now we have this really crude set of measurements around GDP and profit growth and the stock market. Mm-hmm. And those things have very, very little relationship to how Americans are doing anymore. Uh, in the mm-hmm. 60s or 70s, if I had a big company that was profitable, I needed to hire tens of thousands of people to, you know, build the cars or like build, like move things around. Mm-hmm. And now I don't need to do any of that. I can become wildly profitable. And my employing a lot of people actually probably means I'm bad. <laughs> you know, so I like yeah. it. And so they, they, they're just going to narrow their employee base. If they hire anyone, they're going to be like, you're not a real employee. You're a contractor. We're going to gig mm-hmm. you. We're not going to give you insurance. <laughs> That's where. Right. So it's past time for us to come up with new measurements that actually indicate how we're doing as a society. Things like mental health, freedom from substance abuse, mm-hmm. uh, rates of incarceration and recidivism, mm-hmm. environmental quality. Mm-hmm. We need to monetize a lot of these things that we're not rewarding right now, but monetizing them with dollars would actually um, not be ideal for a number of reasons. So we should come up with a new currency, a digital social credit that we use to monetize and reward things like helping people get off drugs or helping youth mm-hmm. develop. So uh, how are you planning on creating a space for yourself and for UBI on the national stage? Obviously, there's a lot of Democratic senators making noise about 2020 and 2020 is like looked at as our one great hope. Um, so why do you think your your message will connect with people more than than theirs? Well, uh, there's a recent poll that came out that showed 73 percent of Americans believe that new technologies, software, AI are going to eliminate many more jobs than they create over mm-hmm. the next 10 years. And 48 percent of Americans, including a majority of Democrats, are now pro-universal basic income. 
Um, oh. In my opinion, both of those levels are just going to rise from here. Um, so I, I think that I've got a great shot at making a case to the American people that this is what we need to do. If you want to find out more about Andrew, visit yang2020.com. Look, being the president is a pretty massive job, and I'm not totally convinced running on the basis of UBI alone qualifies him for it. I gotta say, I like the cut of his jib, you know? Listen, guys, I don't know if giving everybody a thousand bucks a month is gonna fix all our problems. I don't know that anything will. And I certainly don't like the idea of the libertarian utopia version of universal basic income, where it takes the place of things like food stamps and Medicaid. But especially if we can pay for it in the ways Andrew's describing, Maybe the living wage is one of those incredibly complex problems that has a fairly simple solution. Just give people money. And if you've caught yourself thinking at various points in this episode, come on, this could never happen. It's a pipe dream. I'd like to leave you with a few more words from Mia Birdsong. So one of the things I often say when people hear me talk about guaranteed income and they're like, that's just too much, is I think about my ancestors who were enslaved and where I would be if they were like, oh, you know, ending slavery, like, that's just too much. We should just try to make it less shitty. <laughs> you know, like, that's not okay. <laughs> um, and, and I think about folks who, you know, say in the 1700s, like, all they had known for generations was slavery. All, they, all, they, all that happened after them for generations was slavery. But they still were part of an abolition movement that eventually mostly ended slavery, except for the 13th Amendment. So that's what I think about. I'm like, I'm like, yes, this is a big dream. Like, we have to have big dreams because like, what else are we? Why are we here except to have big dreams and like think about what we really want and like be bold enough and brave enough and vulnerable enough to actually ask for those things and try to make them happen, demand those things. Like, I'm not here to play small. If, if, like, I only get to do life once, that I'm here to, like, try to make the best of it, not just for myself, but for the people who I love and, frankly, for the people who come after me, partly to honor the sacrifices of the people who came before me, but also because, like, we all deserve better. Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review in iTunes. And be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is the show for them. And also tell your friends who continue to think they're going to get laid at parties by whining about how the government ruins everything. Oh my God, wait. Is that now how I get laid at parties? Oh God. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producers are Lindsay Cradwell and Sam Dingman, and we're edited by Chiquita Pascal. Thanks also to Cameron Drews. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. Our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm Gabby Dunn. And it is my honor to say, see you next week.